Greetings. This message today is on August the 26th of the year 2014 on Tuesday at approximately 4.45 p.m. My name is David Thompson. For those of you that are new, I will seek to minister the Word of God by speaking out of the Spirit of God. The words that are not my own words, but are the words that are coming to you by the Spirit of God. I say this in regards to the verse in 1 Peter 4.11 that says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Does that mean that everything I say is completely from God? No. It is that I will seek to speak as the oracles of God. And so my prayer is that you will be ministered to by the Holy Spirit of God. For those of you that are new, that are not satisfied with that which is superficial and shallow and not real, those that are thirsty for reality, you've found the right place to come here because I'm not interested in ministering anything, but what will impart reality to the inner depths of your being? And it is only reality that can satisfy the inner depths of your being. In regards to my pursuit to speak as God would have me speak his words, I also cast lots on the scripture before God. I'm not going to go into detail about it, but it is something that was practiced by the Church of Israel and by the early church and throughout church history, by movements, powerful movements, such as the Moravians. Lots were cast by the early church to decide on the apostle that would take the place of Judas. So what I do is I read a chapter that I receive most of the time by the casting of lots, sometimes other ways. And then I will share what the Holy Spirit is wanting to say from that particular chapter. Today I received two chapters, partly because the first one was so short that I wanted to have a little more to meditate on for the half hour that I spend and because I had read the other one recently. But the first one was Psalms 53 and then the next one I received was certainly confirmatory of the first one because it is also bringing up very similar uh, emphasis and truth. Therefore, I will first read Psalm 53, and then I will read Zephaniah chapter 2. So first we're going to go to Psalm 53. Turning to Psalm 53. To the chief musician upon Mahalath, Miskiel, a psalm of David, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. 
Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread? They have not called upon God. There were they in great fear, where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him that encampeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame, because God hath despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when God bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Now, before I go on to reading the next chapter, I will just briefly emphasize some of the things that are standing out in this chapter. It is clear that this is talking about those that do not fear God, that do not even, in many cases, in their heart, believe in God. In their heart, they're saying there is no God by the way they're living. It emphasizes also that there was a time when they did know God because it says in verse 3, every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. So there is corruption that is set it into them to the point that in their heart they're denying who God actually is. And of course then there's true uh, belief systems such as atheism that even deny the existence of God in this modern age. <clears throat> but those belief systems go far back right to the beginning of time as well. And I don't have time to go into that. I was amazed when I was reading the writing of the early church fathers and I read the writing of people that actually believed in atheism and in evolution way back just a few, something like 50 years after the time of Christ. And their writings, that was, that's my guess, it was very early. But here in this passage, the emphasis is that even though these people are used to persecute the people of God, God is using that persecution to do a purifying work on the people of God. The captivity that is on the people of God due to the persecution of those who do not believe in God is having the thick the effect on the people of God of purifying them and bringing them to the place where eventually they break out of the shell of their captivity like a seed that sprouts out of its shell and blossom forth in total liberty from the captivity that was being used by the wicked to purify the people of God so that they would come forth out of corruption into the place of being his corporate bride. And so it describes coming out of captivity here. Now, the next chapter is in Zechariah, 
pardon me, not Zechariah, Zephaniah chapter 2. That's Zephaniah chapter 2. So we're going to go back to Zephaniah chapter 2 and read Zephaniah chapter 2. And now you will notice that through the casting of lots, how their God is so powerfully works, and this happens all the time to me. As long as I'm walking and living in a holy life, the sovereign power of God is able to work. Consider the fact that the Spirit of God is attached to every particle of existence. And even some top physicists that know a lot more than most physicists, like Ron Pearson, have said that all the mathematics and everything of particle physics points towards all, even where, there's, where there seems to be nothing but pure outer space with nothing in it, there is, as it were, the neurons of a brain behind every particle of existence. And of course, they recently discovered the God particle behind all of the energy conjugations that make up the atom or the energy clusters that make up the atom. They were wondering what causes mass and, and all of these particles to have all these congregations. What's holding it all together? And they discovered the God particle in July 2012 with the Large Hadron Collider that's under Switzerland and France. And I can't go into the details of that. The, Lord, the world's largest project and largest machine to around $16 billion over a 16-year period to build and it's, you know, beyond description here. The explosions, when they are firing them and colliding them in these big chambers, way below the temperature in outer space, and with tremendous forces of magnetism far greater than the Earth, there's a billion explo billions of explosions every second, out of which they filter about a million, which are analyzed by a powerful computer grid that goes around the world. All define the God, part, God particle. How amazing. So here in Ze Zephaniah chapter 2, I now want to read this, considering what I already emphasized in Psalm 53. Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the furious anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. Woe unto the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will even destroy thee, that there shall be no inhabitant. And the seacoast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds, and folds for flocks. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon. In the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening. For the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. 
I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom, and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah. Even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation, the residue of my people shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Then shall they have for their pride, because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship him, every one from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. Ye Ethiopians also, ye shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. And flocks shall lie down in the midst of her, all the beasts of the nations, both the cormorant and the bittern shall lodge in the upper lintels of it. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be in the thresholds, for he shall uncover the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly. It said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation? A place for beasts to lie down in. Every one that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. Just going to take a little water here before I begin to share more. Yes. In this passage of Scripture, we see that there is a very parallel description to what I read in Psalm 53. For in Psalm 53, it is also describing the heathen coming against the nation of Israel. And it is pointing out that they are actually in their hearts saying there is no God by the way they are behaving. Yes, at one time, in the beginning, there was not that corruption, but it began in Cain. And I've shared that in many of my previous messages in more detail about Cain. Here I just want to, first of all, point out a few things in the first three verses. The Lord is saying that, go ahead, gather yourselves together. You're a nation that's not desired in his sight. Notice that there are people that are calling themselves nations nowadays that were merely divided up by the United Nations to be a nation, but really do not have, when you investigate the history and so on, any roots that give them a foundation for a legitimate claim to the land. And I'm not going to get into all those details, but we see that being the case in different 
things that are happening in Israel today with the nations that are surrounding them. And the Lord's saying here in verse 2, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass, the chaff. So the Lord is saying, yeah, I want you to gather together against my people. I have a plan. I have a plan. Before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Yeah, you go ahead and gather together. What we are observing happening in our world in this time is a maturing of the wheat and the tares, of the sons of light, as it were, and the sons of darkness. God has always had a plan throughout history. We see, for example, verses in the scripture that say that he will not judge the Amorites at a particular time because their cup of iniquity is not yet full. So God is patience with nations to corner them through the pressures to possibly turn to God and find God. But if they continually refuse, the hardening process becomes greater and greater, and there's a greater and greater devotion to evil and darkness as time goes on. It's like a, mature, a maturing in the wrong direction. Tares or, we, or, or weeds would represent that which is against life, that is against wholeness, that is against existence. It's an anti-existent state of being. And when people harden their hearts and deny who God is because they've lost the fear of God, they develop belief systems to justify their own self-deceived projections of God if they believe in only one God that is actually idolatrous because it is not the genuine perception of who God really is. It is the result of their own desire to be their own God in independence from God and justify their rebellion and their independence from who God really is by claiming to have a God that is supposedly the genuine one true God. But the evidence of what is real from what is unreal is whether there is a destructibility in what one is believing. The denial of who God really is is a choice to not fear God. It is the basic principle that happened to Eve. She bought into the doubt of Lucifer, who said, I will be like the Most High. Though he was entrusted with the direct stream of God's blessing and glory, somehow he lost that perception of who God is so that he did not perceive him as ultimately trustworthy. He made a choice to not perceive him that way. We don't fully understand this. This is 
called the mystery of iniquity. But in making that choice, at that moment, he no longer believed that God was ultimate, that God was ultimately trustworthy. The genuine fear of God is a choice to perceive what only can be ultimately trustworthy. There's only one quality of being that can be ultimately trustworthy. And that is a love that has such purity and integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to it. Love being that which can freely of its own volition choose the highest lasting good always over any more immediate choice that would be less and therefore would have a principle of destructibility in it. So when you perceive God, that his integrity of love, which is his holiness, which is the defensive aspect of his love, when you see that he is holy, you know that only that quality can contain unlimited power and unlimited life without being corrupted by it, without it being dissipated, and as such is the very source as well. And so this perception of God and his holiness and the purity of his love is not there the moment there was that choice in Lucifer to become independent from God by not having this awe of thankfulness and worship for who that God was the source, that he was created by God, and that only by God could he possibly have destiny and purpose and meaning. And so that moment, as I've said in many of my messages in the past, a vacuum formed in his being that he could not Fill. And so there's a grasping state of being that is continually trying to fill a void and it becomes like a black hole in outer space that makes choices that are less than the highest good that have destructibility in it like a black hole in outer space and so things start being pulled in in a destructive way all around by the choices that are made that are out of independence from the very source of life and of total completeness of total reality. Reality is that which is totally filled with life with no destructibility in it. Reality is defined by various dictionaries as basically this, that which is unchangeable, everlasting, and indestructible. That which is totally real. And in this passage here, Instead of getting into the detail of this, all I'm wanting to point out here is that it was the beginning of self-projections that are idolatrous of one God that evolved very easily into many gods starts with Cain. Cain is offended at the consequences of God's judgment upon that which has gone against his love when man made the choice to be independent by buying into the doubt that Satan put in Eve. The moment Eve doubted God, she also fell from 
making that choice of perceiving God as ultimately trustworthy by the quality of his being in holiness that is also up there out of transcendent in mercy. Now, I can go into detail as I have in various messages, but basically I would say this, that out of the integrity of God's love or the holiness of God is the foundation for there to be the expression of God's love and creativity that is without corruption, that is ever expanding, ever enlarging, and greater and greater fulfillment, and was ultimately manifested in God's desire to have a corporate bride of beings who out of their own free will would be brought into harmony with his will. And that was fully focused in its full revelation of love and God's condescension in his son on the cross. God took judgment upon himself for you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature, and more than, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, so that you could be reconciled to God. And so the two aspects of the being of God that reveal what is ultimately trustworthy are first the foundation of God's love and holiness that requires judgment, and secondly, out of that, the expression of God's love and mercy that can assure forgiveness and therefore destiny and meaning and fulfillment to his creation, to all who repent. And if God could not assure that, that would imply that he was creating creation without perfection and therefore would imply he's imperfect. The fact that he has the capacity because his love is so pure that it is so pure in his expression to the point that he has the moral capacity within himself to become a perfect atoning sacrifice which he did in Jesus Christ which is the full expression of of God into the time and space realm. God, the originator that sees the end from the beginning, which is the Father, and is expressed into the time and space realm in his Son, the word Son meaning expression. So it was only through Jesus Christ that reconciliation to God could be accomplished through unto all who would receive his atoning work in repentance. And in this passage of scripture here, the Lord is emphasizing his anger. Oh, it's not wrong to have anger. Man is created in the image of God and he has anger. Unrighteous anger is wrong, but God's anger is not unrighteous anger. He is a blazing fire in his spirit of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to his love. And when we recognize the greatness of God in his power that is so vast, so powerful, that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and I could go on describing God, we cannot help but be in awe of God and recognize our utter need of God so that we cry out instead of ignoring God and going our own way in independence. We come to the place 
a genuine repentance. And God allows a cornering effect of the emptiness in our own lives and of all the things that we do that are wrong. It has consequences. And those consequences are used to corner people to a place like the prodigal son where they finally recognize the emptiness of their life, the meaninglessness of it, and they loathe all the deception in themselves and those around so that they're hungry for only what's ultimately real, ultimately trustworthy. And then they're open to truth, open to reality like the prodigal son. And there's a true belief, a, reckon, a choice to recognize God for who he really is. In his holiness, the integrity of his love, out of which issues his mercy to love us so much that he took judgment upon himself. And it is only God that could be a perfect atoning sacrifice. And if it was some creature that could save us that way, then we would be worshiping a creature rather than God. But it is only in God that there is forgiveness because he has such a moral capacity which was revealed in the atoning death of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and who rose again and was seen by over 500 witnesses at one time and many others that bear witness and laid down their lives his death being prophesied with hundreds and hundreds of prophecies and various scriptures going back to over a thousand years back before his death, that there's no way he could have fulfilled. Now I'm just sharing all of this because I want to emphasize that when God is angry, his anger is a righteous anger. There is a day when God will release his vengeance upon those that have denied God in their heart, even though they may claim they believe in God with their mind, their lives live out a destructibility which berays the opposite quality. They do not see God as a God that can assure forgiveness and destiny to his creation. They do not see that behind the holiness of God there is such goodness, such love. They only perceive him as demanding and a dictator. And it says in verse 3 here, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. There is a time coming when God's anger will come upon the earth. And it describes this in Isaiah 26.20. It's actually very much like the Passover. Another Passover of God's judgment is coming, except this time it's not just on Egypt. It's upon the whole world. And we're going to turn there right now to where this Passover is described. So we're going to go to Isaiah 26.20. So that's where I'm going right now. Isaiah 26, 20. One moment here. Till we get there. Turning to Isaiah 26, 20. And this is the verse we're going to read in verse 20. Now, before I read this key verse in verse 20, I will read the few verses before to give you a context of this passage. It's describing what will happen to Israel 
just before this happens, when the Lord returns to the earth. And I could go in and it's very powerful what's being shared here. For example, we'll start in verse 13. This is the nation of Israel speaking to the Lord. O Lord, our God, other lords besides thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. They are dead, they shall not live. They are deceased, they shall not rise. Therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord. Thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified. Thou hast removed it far onto all the ends of the earth. Who do you think they're talking? God's talking about here? This is talking about Israel. She was scattered throughout all the nations of the earth. And yet she was brought back by the supernatural providential power of God in 1948 to be a nation again. And so here we see Israel being described as a nation that he has increased, and indeed that has already been happening. There is more inventions in Israel than in any other nation on the earth that are amazing, profound inventions. There's tremendous innovation. There are more companies than all of Europe and Israel that are innovative companies that are being brought forth with powerful new inventions. It's too much to go into here. Lord, in trouble they have visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them, speaking of Israel. And if anyone has been in trouble, Israel has known that, such as the terrible trial they went through in World War II through Hitler. Like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. So this is Israel being described in our captivity that I talked about. It's like the pressures of the womb. Eventually, through the pressures, the child is formed to the degree of maturity that it is time for that there to be a birthing and a coming forth. And that always has involved pressure and trial. And in the case of Israel, there was a birthing and a coming forth. Then Jacob, as the patriarch, reading his life story, the word Jacob means deceiver. But he had a great hunger for God. He wanted God, but there was an unraveling process of deception in his life through the pressure of captivity that came to a climax when he could not take it any longer living with Laban. And so he came to the place of fleeing from Laban, and he was in total fear for his life, travail like a woman and child because he knew Esau wanted to kill him and here he had wife and children and he was going to face Esau who vowed to kill him many years ago. And that is when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord whose name was Wonderful which means it was the Lord himself and he prevailed because of his hunger for God which is basically what this speaks of in the wrestling his hunger caused him to wrestle through all the deceptions in his life that allowed him to make choices that brought him into captivity. But the pressure of the hunger became so great that it unraveled the deception to the point that there was breakthrough out of the womb of his captivity when the Lord revealed himself to him in that wrestling. And it says that he saw God face to face. And so at that point, 
his thigh was maimed by that wrestling, and he limped. And God said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but it will be Israel. And that is where the name Israel comes from. Israel means he shall be a prince of God. And so here we see in this passage, like as a woman with child that draweth near, the time of her delivery is in pain, and crieth out in her pain, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. And with all the pressure of the nations around the nation of Israel, it is driving them to a place where they're recognizing they can't trust in the states anymore. They can't trust in anyone. They're being cornered to only one place, and they have to rely on God to be their defense. They can't ultimately trust in their military might. It's not wrong to be responsible and to protect themselves as a nation. But they must learn to put their trust in God. And this is the process that is bringing them to that place, even like Jacob, facing his enemy. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So they're admitting, we haven't done what we should have as a nation before you, God. We should have been able to bring such a powerful work of God to the world that they would have never been able to corner us like this. But they're recognizing that they failed in their relationship with God. To be in intimacy with God, they fell into mere ritualism, many of them. Not all, there's always a remnant. And then it says this amazing thing, that when there is this repentance in Israel, the next verse says this, thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing ye the dwell in the dust, for thy Jew is as the Jew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And we only saw a few messages back in Zechariah 14 and Zechariah chapter 12, where it says in chapter 12 and in 14, it describes them being cornered and half the city being, being taken into captivity. Yes, their military might is broken and they're brought to a place where they're desperately crying out to God. And God appears, he hears their cry. And it says, they will look on me whom they have pierced in Zechariah chapter 12. And here we see the same thing happen. They're acknowledging their need of God. And the Lord reveals himself to them, to them and the dead come out of the dust. And at the same time, the next verse, which is the key verse I wanted to emphasize here, is verse 20, and it says this, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall not shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. What we have here is a description of the presence of God that comes, of course, 
out of the emanation of the very personage of Christ returning upon the Mount of Olives where it splits in half and they look on him whom they have pierced as a nation. But there's an emanation of God's presence that is a blazing fire of judgment that goes throughout all the earth devouring the wicked. And it comes out of his mouth as described in Revelations 19, the last few verses, as a sword of light that causes the slain, the multitudes to be slain by the bright light, like a sharp two-edged sword that is coming out of, out of the mouth of the Messiah, to the point that it goes to the depth of the horse bridle for 1,600 furlines, which I believe is around 1,500 kilometers square. So the Lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. When the presence of God returns, people will try to hide from him as it describes in Revelations chapter 1 and in other parts of Revelation. And they'll call for the mountains and rocks. And it says, in those, men, in those days shall men seek death. And death shall flee from them because the presence of the God is not going to allow people to die anymore as far as in their physical body. But they'll be in total torment because when you don't know God and his presence begins to come, it becomes a consuming fire like hell. God's presence, it says, will fill all things. And when it fills those areas where people in their heart are in rebellion against God, it becomes a blazing inferno of torment. But God is saying here that those people that are meek, as it says in Zechariah 2, come my people, enter thou into thy chambers, Shut thy doors about thee, hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. There's a scripture that says, He that hideth himself in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That is Psalm 91, the, about the first verse. And it goes on to assure the protection of God. And it is in relation to whether they are dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. That is the place of the fear of God. That is the place where we in utter awe of God and brings us to the place of utter humility before God where we're just still in utter awe of Him. Be still and know that I am God. And another verse says, Be silent before me, O all the earth. This is a place of awe. And it doesn't mean that we don't end up being filled with adulation, but it's out of the humility. It is out of the humility that there's the deep turning of the heart. It's out of the humility that brings us to the place of honesty, that there's the deep turning of the heart. It is out of the honesty that comes out of that, that it brings us into greater humility, that there's an even greater turning of the heart. And it's the turning of the heart. It's the breaking of the shell of pride in the heart out of the knowledge and the awareness of who God is that causes the veil to come off our heart so that the eye of our heart sees who God is and his glory and his beauty. King David said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, 
that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life. The beauty of God comes out of the holiness of God. For the beauty of God is the emanation of his presence in creativity. And he is the very ultimate beauty. And if you look at the beauty of creation, how beautiful it is, a beautiful wife or whatever, how much more the Lord, the very source of beauty, which issues out of the wholeness that comes out of the holiness of God. Wholeness which only can fill the void within our being that was made to only have the presence of God and his fullness of reality in our being. That brings wholeness. And it's that wholeness that comes. It is contained in the integrity of God's love that requires judgment. And out of that comes the emanation of beauty. And so we desire the Lord. And he will hide us if we are in that secret place of the Most High. And this is described in Zechariah chapter 2. So we'll go back to Zechariah chapter 2 now. And just look at that again. That's not Zechariah, pardon me. Zephaniah, my mistake. Zephaniah chapter 2. So we're just on the first few verses, but we'll do this chapter. So it's emphasizing meekness here. It's saying, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth. Now, I don't remember all the details of meekness, but I know it had the understanding of humility, but more than humility. A humility that does not have anxiety in it a humility that is pliable, that is tranquil in the midst of trouble. That is being in the secret place of the Most High, which have wrought his judgment. Those that work the judgments of God are those that are in conformity to who God is because they are abiding in the secret place of the Most High, this place which is the genuine fear of God. There's a verse that says you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. And indeed, if we have a relationship with God, the things that are around us of this world are no longer the things we live for. Therefore, they do not have influence on us. Our buttons can't be pushed by the circumstances because we are no longer alive unto those things. We are alive in our being unto a relationship with what is ultimately real and satisfying, which is only found in God himself. There's a process of dying to the deceptions in our heart that tend to grasp after those things that are empty and not real. But that is being used if we hunger and seek for him and do not give up to the place where we come out of our captivity and our deceptions are unraveled like it was with Jacob. And so it says here again, the very same verse that we read in Isaiah 26, 20, it's got the same say, and maybe ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. So we see the Passover of the Lord. And on the Passover, their focus was on the atoning work which was represented in that lamb 
that was on the doorposts of the house, which represents the gateway to their heart. And the gateway for God to enter our heart is through the atoning work of God, who became a perfect atoning sacrifice for us in the full expression of himself on the cross, in the full son of himself, the full son, Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. Now I'm just going to describe things that are very relevant in this last part of the chapter to the present things that we are witnessing in history at this moment. It says, For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. This is speaking of the Gaza that we know today that is attacking Israel, the Philistines. It goes on and it says, Woe unto the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaanite, the land of the Philistines. This is the very land that right now is Gaza and that is attacking Israel. And it says this about them, I will even destroy thee, that there shall be no inhabitant. And the seacoast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon. In the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening. For the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity, speaking of Israel. So here you see Israel taking over these nations, these nations being totally wiped out, what is presently Gaza and the Philistines. But then we go on and it describes more judgments upon the surrounding nations. And it says, I have heard in verse eight, the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon. Now, what location is that today? Ammon is the West Bank and Moab is approximately where the rest of Jordan is. And so here we have a description that these people, and we know that they've done that and that they're continually magnifying themselves against the border of Israel, as it says here. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah. Even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation, the residue of my people shall spoil them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This shall they have for their pride, because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts, speaking of the nation of Israel, and of those true Christians that are part of the commonwealth of the Israel of God. The root is pride. Pride is the opposite of the fear of God. There are many verses that emphasize that the fear of God breaks pride. I can't find them now and go into that, but I know they are there. Pride is in conformity to Satan. It is a state of self-worship, of self-trust, of independence from God because there's no 
fear of God. And it results in the belief systems that started in Cain. You can see how polytheism would have evolved from Cain. Because Cain's offended at the holiness of God, so God's an enigma. Therefore, maybe there are other gods just like God that are better than this God. You can see how that can easily happen. That they can reason, well, maybe there is other gods. This is a very vast and big universe. Certainly there must be other beings that have evolved. And maybe I'm just under some powerful being. So there's the belief in many gods and then the other belief system that's monotheistic that is a distortion of God where you have a God that's demanding that cannot assure forgiveness and destiny that requires submission but it's a submission that has no perception of the purity of God's holiness or of the greatness of God's mercy that one can receive in forgiveness to have assured destiny So it says in this chapter, the Lord will be terrible unto them for he will famish all the gods of the earth. When God's presence goes around the world with judgment, all the false gods will be burned up by his judgment and judgment will come on those that have allowed themselves to cling to delusional belief systems that are not facing reality and that are justifying their own independence in a direction that is destructive and filled with death instead of reality. Reality being that which is totally real because there is no death in it. And the only quality that can have that is the love of God. Because only the love of God can contain life without corruption, unlimited power and life without corruption, which is basically to contain ever-expanding goodness or the expression of love and creativity that is ever-enlarging and expanding. It says here, everyone, man shall worship only the Lord, everyone from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. And God goes on and he mentions the other nations that will be judged, the Ethiopians. Also, ye shall be slain by my sword. That's the sword of light that comes out of his mouth. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. Now, Assyria at that time was a large empire which is in the location of Iran, Iraq, and Syria today. And so it is talking about those locations will be destroyed by God. He will make Nineveh desolation, dry like the wilderness. And it goes on to describe this. It mentions that this is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly. Now, this is speaking of Babylon in the context of the time this was written, which was a city in Nineveh that time that did dwell carelessly and said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. There's always a foretype of fulfillment in the scripture. And the first foretype of this cycle that repeats itself so often in history is in the destruction of Babylon at the time that this was written. Or I should say in the future, I'm not sure, it's probably this is a prophecy before this happened to the Babylon of that time. But it is also foretelling about the very last days here and about the Babylon 
that is the world system that will exist globally in the last days. I can see that I've been preaching for a long time. And there is much more to share on this. And so I will just sum up some of the things that are very relevant to this chapter, Zephaniah chapter 2. And that is Isaiah 34 and Isaiah 14, 22 to 32. Particularly in Isaiah 14, 22 to 32, if we look at that chapter briefly in Isaiah, and I'm turning there now to Isaiah 14. Now I'm at Isaiah 14. And I want to go to, there's too much in here, but the first part of this Isaiah 14 is describing basically Babylon. But then as it describes Babylon, it goes into the description of the spiritual power behind Babylon. And it describes Lucifer himself. And it says this concerning him, starting in, for example, the last part of verse 8. Since thou art laid down, no feller has come up against thee. Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. They shall all speak and say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we are? Art thou become like unto us? And it goes on, I don't want to. Um, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Verse 12. How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? And it goes on and describes all the kings of the nations, even all of them lie in glory, every one in his own house, but thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch, and as the, remin as the raiment of those that are slain thrust through the sword that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet. I can't go on describing this. Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. And it goes on. I cannot go on and share everything in here but I will emphasize verse 22 to 32. Well, for I will rise up against them, saith the Lord, and cut off from Babylon the name and the remnant and the son and the nephew, saith the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the bittern and pools of water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. I will break the Assyrian in my land, and upon my mountains tread him underfoot, 
Then shall his yoke depart from off them and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth and this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out and who shall turn it back? And so that is the description of the last days and of God's plan for what he will do and how he will use the terrible black backdrop of these evil, wicked nations that have hardened themselves in a maturity that is in the direction of evil and of destructiveness to not only purify his people, but therein also bring his judgment upon them to their utter destruction so that there is such a glory of God that causes the light to shine so bright by the terrible darkness that was part of that process that made the light come forth in such brightness. Thank you for listening to this message. Until we talk again, God bless you. Thank you.